Maine's Political Pulse is made possible in part by Lee Jeep in Auburn and Westbrook, featuring family-sized SUVs like the Wagoneer and Jeep Grand Cherokee L. LeeAuto.com. Welcome to Maine's Political Pulse. I'm Maine Public Statehouse correspondent Kevin Miller. This week is a special edition of The Pulse as we recap the political news for the month of January. What you're about to hear is a lightly edited version of the live discussion with Maine Calling host Jennifer Rooks, Maine Public Chief Political Correspondent Steve Missler, and myself. Welcome back, Kevin. I'll start with you. The legislature has been in session for a few weeks now. I understand they started with more than 2,000 bills under consideration. What is going on at this point? Where are they in the hearing and committee process? Well, it's still early days and the committees have started meeting, but so far it's mostly been orientations and briefings or presentations from the heads of the state agencies that report to those committees. The committee that handles the state budget has already held some hearings, but the real dissections of the meaty stuff that's in the governor's proposed $10.3 billion budget won't really get going for a, a few more weeks. So, you know, it's, it's, this is the typical process. It's a little slow start, and then they heat up in, in uh, February. But we can see from those 2,000 bills, at least from their titles, because we don't have the language for most of them, but we can see some trends about the popular topics and what lawmakers are interested in or what their constituents want. Not surprisingly, there are a number of bills um, dealing with abortion sponsored by both Republicans and Democrats. Um, education uh, could be another hot topic, you know, and some of those seem to be a continuation of the Republicans' focus on, on what's being taught in, in schools regarding race and gender issues. And there are a lot of energy bills, not surprisingly, given how expensive things are this winter. I, I actually counted eight bills just dealing with electricity rates alone. And kind of in another sign of the times, lawmakers put in dozens of bills dealing with housing you know, access to it, ways to expand affordable housing, you name it. So they'll be pretty busy over the next uh, four and a half to five months. Steve, do we have a sense of what major bills will have legs this legislative session? Yeah, Jen, I think it's a little difficult to say at this point, especially in the absence of bill language and sponsor details, which Kevin just alluded to. I think at last count, I think there's only 15% of the bills that have been submitted that have actually been drafted. And that's really where you pick up some sense of sponsor horsepower, like if legislative leaders are behind them. But, you know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, clearly bills sponsored by Democrats are going to have a decent shot because the party is in the majority. Um, but even that's not a guarantee of passage. You know, take the previous legislative session. There were about 2,000 bills and roughly 28% of them became law. So a lot of these are just not going to go anywhere. That said, I think proposals dealing with expanding abortion access will get a, will get traction in a Democratic-controlled le legislature. The same goes for child care access, workforce development, education spending, and affordable housing. Those are all priorities for the majority party. So it stands to reason that they'll get the most buy-in from leadership, which has a lot of say in what advances and what doesn't. Kevin, yesterday, the Secretary of State's office validated a citizen initiative that will likely end up on November's ballot. This was put forward by a group billing itself as No Blank Checks. Explain this. So No Blank Checks is a campaign that so far has been pretty much bankrolled by the parent company of Central Maine Power, CMP. And this ballot initiative is is a direct response to another one that will also be on the ballot in November. And that one 
if it was approved, would force CMP and Versant, the state's two big utilities, to sell all their assets to a quasi-governmental agency that would that would essentially take over most of uh, Maine's electric grid. Not surprisingly, CMP and Versant really don't like this idea. And what the no blank checks referendum wants to do is to force this so-called consumer-owned utility to get voter approval if they were going to borrow more than $1 billion through revenue bonds to purchase all these assets from CMP and Versant. We already vote here in Maine on your typical bonds for roads and bridges and land conservation through like the Land for Maine's Future program. But voter approval isn't required for this type of bond that, that we're talking about here. And there's a lot of disagreement about how much money this Pine Tree Power Company would have to pay CMP and Versant to buy out their assets, but it's definitely in the billions and billions of dollars. And this is another way that CMP is trying to block this push for a new nonprofit um, utility. And just one last, I think, important bit of context here. Avangrid, which is CMP's parent company, has already spent more than $10 million to oppose this other competing ballot initiative. And we're going to see a lot more spending on both sides in the next uh, 10 months or so. And kind of Maine voters are going to have to untangle this all call come November with two competing measures. And this will go to the legislature first, but in all likelihood, it will end up in November before the voters. Right. The legislature, typically, they, they get first choice of whether to, to approve it or not. But typically in these situations, they just kick it right out to the to the voters. Steve, back to the state house. The governor, as you all have mentioned, has released her budget proposal what happens now? Do you expect a so-called bipartisan budget this year? Well, your second question, Jen, will there be a bipartisan budget is is a key one. And I think it's difficult at this point to predict one way or the other. Uh, I will say that a bipartisan budget, that is one that gains a supermajority vote in the legislature, will really depend on whether Democrats who are in the majority engage with re the Republican minority and negotiate. Or do they simply ramp through a two-year spending plan on their own? I mean, that's what they did two years ago after concluding that the GOP would risk a government shutdown like the one that happened in 2017. The problem with forcing a majority budget, Jen, is political and twofold. It it looks like you've abandoned compromise, which is which the public tends to favor. And it also means that the majority party owns all the initiatives in the budget. And that could be risky if the budget initiatives are as well. But whether that happens, I think, largely depends on the personalities and leadership and whether they think they can trust one another. And if both sides think the other is bargaining in good faith, then there's a pretty good chance there will be a bipartisan budget. Right now, both sides are saying that's what they want. But then again, I also don't recall a single instance when one party has come out and announced, you know what, we're going to ram this thing down the minority party's throats. It's never vocalized that way, even if that's the uh, ultimate outcome. Kevin, in Washington and nationally, we are seeing divisions not only between the political parties, but within the political parties, evidenced by Kevin McCarthy's difficult battle to become House Speaker. What do the party politics look like in Augusta so far? Do they mirror what's going on in Washington? Well, we saw a partisan flare-up from kind of the very start over this $473 million emergency spending bill that Governor Mills and Democrats wanted to pass on what was supposed to be pretty much a ceremonial first day of the session last month. Republicans in the Senate blocked it, which actually put them at odds with Democrats, but also with their Republican colleagues down the hallway in the House. But it passed a month later, and that's why most Mainers will soon start seeing these $450 checks in the mail. You know, since then, the, the partisanship and the tensions between Democrats and Republicans have, have 
cool down. And as Steve said, everyone seems eager and open to negotiate on the budget bill. The caucuses, unlike in Washington, the caucuses up here elected them without controversy for the most part. There were some contested races on the Republican side, but people seem to be working pretty cooperatively. You know, one thing that I do find interesting is that the Republicans in both the House and the Senate have been much more proactive, it seems, this session so far on getting their message out. I remember when uh, Representative Billy Bob Falkingham of Winter Harbor, when he won the internal election to lead the House Republican caucus late last year, the first thing he said to, to me and other reporters afterwards was that other people, meaning Democrats, have been defining the Republican Party for some time. And this was their opportunity to define for the public what the Republican Party was. So Representative Falkingham and his counterpart in the Senate, Trey Stewart, have been very accessible so far, and Senate Republicans have actually started holding weekly press conferences to talk about their agenda and to get their, their message out there. So that, that's a change from what we've seen the past couple of years. Those two, though, the two men, the two Republican leaders you just mentioned, have very different personalities and styles, though, don't they, Kevin? They do. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they interact with each other. They, Like I said, they were, they were on opposite sides, on uh, at least initially on those $450 relief checks and the and the emergency spending bill. Um, they had different backgrounds. Billy Bob Falkingham is, is a lobsterman from uh, down East Maine. Uh, Trey Stewart is, is young. He's, a, he's an attorney. He obviously seems to have political uh, ambitions probably beyond the state house, uh, and he's from Arista County. But at the same time, they seem to, to work together uh, pretty well, and I know they, they have uh, served together in, in the legislature for some time. Steve? Yeah, I would just add real quick, in terms of internal party divisions, I mean, I think we're seeing less of that in the legislature, as Kevin just uh, outlined. Um, however, there there is a leadership fight for the, in the battle for the main Republican Party, which will be settled uh, uh, over the weekend, where Demi Kazunis, the current chair of the party, is um, seeking one final go, I guess, uh, at this. She's been doing this for two, I think, at least two or three election cycles, and those election cycles have not gone well. So she's facing some criticism from grassroots Republicans. And um, we'll have to see how that pans out over the weekend to see whether or not she retains that seat or whether somebody else takes her place. Steve, last year, a sweeping bill that would have granted new rights for the Wabanaki tribal nations never got its final vote. Will that bill be reintroduced this session? And if not, what are Wabanaki leaders hoping for this session? Well, I think the, the sovereignty bill you mentioned, Jen, remains the ultimate goal of the Wabanaki. They're not abandoning it, but it's it's unclear if they'll push the same legislation this year, given that Governor Mills has been pretty strident about her opposition to it. For now, the, the tribes have said they're interested in overhauling parts of the 1980 Settlement Act, which is uh, the agreement that they have long blamed for limiting their economic self-determination and preventing them from benefiting from new federal laws that assist other federally recognized tribes. At the same time, the Wabanaki Alliance, which is this nonprofit that's been uh, doing some advocacy on their behalf, is trying to broaden the tribe's support coalition in the legislature by adding Republicans. And they've already um, made some inroads with House Minority Leader Billy Bob Fockingham, who recently expressed sympathy for their cause. And I think GOP support is really going to be key to the tribe's sovereignty efforts, at least in the near term, because Democrats don't have enough votes to override a gubernatorial veto. But if Republicans get on board and there's a critical mass of them, then a sovereignty bill might actually have a chance of passing. Kevin, earlier this month, the legislature passed and the governor signed an emergency winter relief 
plan, part of that plan, $450 checks for most people in Maine. Do we know when those will go out? So I checked in this morning with the state agency that'll be sending out those checks, and I was told that they haven't gone out yet, but they're on track to start being sent out before the end of the month, which is next Tuesday. And that's the same time frame that they were talking about several weeks ago when this uh, finally made it through the legislature. They won't all go out at once, though. I mean, we're talking about almost 900,000 checks, and these are actual paper checks. They're not direct deposits. And I believe they expect those to go out in batches through March. So the checks aren't quite in the mail, but they're coming soon. All right. Steve, a state representative from Walderboro, Clinton Collimore, appears to be in hot water. Explain the latest on the situation there and whether you think he'll resign. Well, Representative Collimore has been asked to resign by House Speaker Rachel Talbot Ross, but it's unclear at this point if he will. He's directed questions uh, about his situation to his attorney. Collimore, who's a Democrat, was indicted last month for allegedly forging multiple signatures to obtain public funds through Maine's campaign financing program. He's facing 33 counts, including aggravated forgery and criminal violation of the Maine Clean Election Act, according to an indictment sought by the Attorney General's office. Now, these are pretty serious charges, Jen. They they involve Maine's clean election program, which provides public financing to qualifying candidates. And in order to qualify for that financing, a House candidate has to gather $65 checks. And then the people giving those checks have to sign this form, basically stating that they've, in fact, donated this money. The reason for the signature is important because it's a legal document that affirms that a voter in the candidate's district has actually donated. Without it, you could have candidates fork over $300, which is the total of $65 checks, and turn around and get $14,000 in state funds for their campaign. And that's how much Representative Calamore ended up receiving before a staffer at the Maine Ethics Commission noticed what they think are irregularities in the signatures that he provided to qualify for that money. And that's how we ended up where we are now. The Ethics Commission did its own internal investigation, thought there were irregularities, referred those to the Attorney General's office, which then sought charges. And that's where we are right now. We don't know the status of that of that case at the moment. And we don't know whether Representative Calamore will decide to stay in that position or if he'll resign as he's been asked to do. And give us some perspective. How common is this under Maine's clean election law? Is this the first case? No, it's not the first case, Jen. There's been a couple in the past, but they're relatively infrequent. And that's because the Ethics Commission, they basically do routine audits of, of these forms to check for these type of things, these irregularities. And usually they they catch them. I mean, there was another uh, Republican candidate from Sanford whose name escapes me at the moment. There was irregularities found on his forms, and he never got the clean election money. And, and he ended up withdrawing from the race. So they actually caught that one. In this case, they didn't notice the irregularities until Representative Calamore had gone in to get supplemental uh, public financing, which, which is allowed under the law. It was there that the, the uh, staffer at Ethics noticed the irregularities on the initial application, and that's how we ended up where we are now. But in terms of how often this happens, it's relatively infrequent. I think the last one may have been in 2016, and that's, I think, the end of the day, ultimately testament to the auditing uh, that takes place. Kevin. 
Yeah, and I just would, would add to that that it's much more frequent that we see these kinds of issues in the referendum process where you have people going out with the petition signatures and they have to collect 63,000 plus signatures from people. We've we've seen multiple instances of fraud in, in those cases, but like Steve said, to have this in a legislative race is definitely more unusual. And that's Maine's Political Pulse for this week. A reminder that The Pulse typically posts on Friday afternoon, with an excerpt broadcasting Friday evening during All Things Considered. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our weekly newsletter. Sign up at mainpublic.org pulse. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>